Well, as has been said already, but I'll say it again, welcome tonight to City Life. You chose a good night, whether you're here for the first time or you were on the fence thinking, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. We're glad you're here. I'm glad you're here because it's what we call a welcome weekend. So maybe it's your first time to a welcome weekend and you're thinking, well, what on earth is a welcome weekend? Uh, how many of you guys are on Facebook? Back in, oh, say like 2009, there was a notes function to Facebook. I don't think anybody uses that anymore. I don't even know if it's on there anymore, but there was just this gimmick, this thing where you would put 25 facts about yourself out there for people to read. It was just another way for us to use Facebook to stroke our egos <laughs> and uh, get attention. But when I, in 2009, I was fresh out of college. I was in my lower 20s, and I had time to actually write up 25 facts about myself, and I forgot it existed. But then, of course, Nate Nowotny not only somehow found it, but then commented on it so everybody else saw it. And, and it brought it back to my attention Nothing is too embarrassing. Some of it's kind of funny looking back on, but what was honestly profound, and, and at first I wanted to punch Nate, but then I want to thank Nate, because uh, it, it's, this is back in 2009. One of the things was I'm happily single, but the plan has always been that if I'm not making them with my soulmate by 28, I'm going to adopt a kid myself. That's what it said word for word. So it was interesting, because clearly I got married to Steph. Thank goodness. I'm better for it. She is my helpmate and made me a better person, but we started the adoption process when I was 28. So it's just so cool to look back. So thank you, Nate, for pulling that up out of the mothballs of Facebook. To look back and see the, the dreams God puts on our heart and then where he takes us the years later in ways I wouldn't have even thought of. But we're here. And we're actually in the process of adopting. Again, started when I was 28. But I, I say all that because Welcome Weekend's kind of like that. It's like here's some stuff about the church that makes us unique. Here's some stuff about the church that defines us and helps you get to know us better. And don't worry, I don't have a 25-point sermon tonight. I'm not going to keep you that long. But even just to start, our church at City Life has one overarching message that we hit on again and again. And it's heaven now, heaven forever. And the heaven now, it's lowercase h. It recognizes this fact that we're not going to experience heaven in its full measure until after this life. But it says in the Bible that God whets our appetites for that. That eternal life, that life abundant, we don't have to wait for it, but as we follow Christ and imitate Christ, we get to experience it here in this life. In Psalm 27, you know, the, the, the whole idea of getting a taste of heaven doesn't mean that your life feels like heaven all the time. We're not saying that it, it's all going to be uh, perfect from here on out. Again, Psalm 27, David is in a rough spot. He's fleeing for his life, and yet he says... In Psalm 27, verse 13, I would have lost heart if I didn't think I'd see the goodness of God in the land of the living. That's what we believe, that, that no matter where we're at in life, we'll see the goodness of God in this life as he works in our hearts. So that's part of our message. That's part of our mission. But tonight, we're going to dig into the word. It's, it's going to be Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I've got it in front of me. There's Bibles in your pews, and then I'll throw it up on the screen as well. So you've got many options to read the Word tonight. You, there's no getting around it. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is my prayer, 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Come on, that's a, a powerful passage from this letter, this message to the church in Philippi. And at the heart of our church's message is an invitation. You know, when we go through announcements and we're talking about life groups, we're talking about devoted, we're talking about discovering city life, we preface it with it all when we welcome you here. Like, if this isn't the church for you, we want to help you find that church. Because we believe that if we're going to get a taste of the life and the goodness of God that he has for us, it's going to be in the body of Christ. Whether it's here or it's a place up the street that fits you better and feeds you better, it's an invitation to find a home. At some point, we have to accept that, get rooted, and pursue God and his family of faith. Because there's fruit that will come from that that won't come otherwise. You know, there's power to an invitation. Some of you are here tonight because either this week or weeks past, somebody invited you here. One invite can change a life. But I saw a, a psychologist, he posed this question in a survey. He said, if you could invite a historical figure to dinner, who would it be? And then he recorded hundreds of answers. So I'll toss it out to you guys. If you could invite one historical figure, it could be dead, alive, from yesterday or years past, who would it be to chill, have a dinner with, have some conversation with? Wayne. Julius Caesar. Beat that, guys. Amy. Jesus. Sorry, Wayne. <laughs> Anybody else? Adam, also good. <laughs> Steph, like I was slapping. <laughs> Anybody else? Plato, Mother Teresa, I heard. Abraham, Paul, Joseph. He'd have some stories to tell. I know for myself, as we're about to dot from India, this is. Ravi Zacharias, he's one of the, my favorite authors, just a, a monster apologist, and he could tell me stories not only about Jesus but about India. And low-key, probably my dark horse candidate, Marshawn Lynch, known for playing football, eating lots of Skittles, and not getting involved at the one-yard line in the Super Bowl, but he's also hilarious. So those are probably my top two. But when they ranked them, when he took all the answers from all these people, the number one answer was Albert Einstein. Number two, Charles Darwin. And then at a distant fourth, tied with like six other people, was Jesus. Different strokes for different folks. But here's the thing. Out of all of those answers, there's only one person that is extended to each person in this room an invitation for fellowship. It says in Revelations 3.20, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. It's Jesus wanting relationship with us. In Revelations 22, 17, it says the spirit and the bride, which is the church, they echo this invitation to come. It's an invitation we see when all the way back when Jesus first called his disciples in Matthew 4, 19, when he said to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And it's one we find echoed in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Or as another translation says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This invitation to come 
and follow Jesus is one of the most meaningful. It is the most meaningful invitation we'll ever lay hold of. And this invitation is what we hope to echo throughout our existence as a church. Like the bride echoing Christ's invitation and saying, come in the last chapter of Revelation, we echo it still. You know, Pastor Fred, he wrote a book. Oh, where did I leave it? It's a a little book. It's a green book. It's called Praxis. He wrote it, published it recently, and it breaks down the, how we walk out this pursuit of Jesus. Praxis means an adopted practice. And Pastor Fred, he's long broken down in sermons and in teachings, uh, this invitation to imitate. He's broken it down in, in three numbers, 6, 12, 24. I know it looks like a date from 1924, but that actually has deeper significance. It speaks to six commands, 12 pathways, and 24 virtues. It's a teaching. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've, you've heard it. And the way Pastor Fred puts it is if I accept the invitation to follow and imitate Christ, I must obey the six commands. And to obey the six commands, I must walk in the 12 pathways. And when I walk in the 12 pathways, I will become the 24 virtues. So there's a whole lot in that statement that he unpacks in that book. So if you're not familiar with it, I'm going to break it down a little bit tonight, but that's a whole sermon series. So I'm just going to give you the invitation. If you're new to City Life, if this is your first night, that intrigues you. They have those books at the Information Center. If you've been coming here for five years, sorry. There is a, there is a website, letspraxis.com, where you can order one, be it digital or, or an actual book. But to break it down, those six commands that he's speaking of, where, where if I'm going to accept the invitation, I must obey these six commands. It's follow Jesus, love God, love people, be perfect, which is accepting this challenge in Matthew 5, 48, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Accepting the challenge to change and be transformed. And then go everywhere and receive power. And then when we achieve these 24 virtues, the 24 virtues come from the five great growth lists in the Bible. We find these growth lists in Matthew 5. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, and 2 Peter 2. Again, I know that's a lot. It's in the book, or we'll be posting it to the web when we post this podcast. And it's deeper than any one sermon can dig, but I want, I want to look at it from this angle of invitation. Because, again, we have this invitation from Jesus to follow him. We have this invitation from Paul to follow and imitate him as he imitates Christ. And there's just two aspects of this invitation I want to look at. And then I want to start looking at those pathways and how they tie in. But the first part of the invitation is the invitation is intimate. God is infinite, yet he's intimate. He's infinitely powerful, yet he's personally intimate. It's profound when you think about it. And for some of us, we have no problem viewing God as infinitely powerful. The Romans thought of Zeus as their father, yet he was a father you didn't trifle with. One of those dads that say, do what I say and leave me alone. That breed of fathers. But some of us struggle with this idea of Jesus being intimate, wanting to know us, loving us, delighting over us. To that, I would say, man, if that's you tonight, read Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about adoption and sonship and becoming daughters of, of God the Father. Read Romans 8 where it talks about how we're predestined to be sons and daughters of God, how he's our loving Abba Father, how he delights in us. But some of us, on the other side of the coin, we have no problem with, with viewing Jesus and God as intimate. We're the ones that wore our Jesus is my homeboy shirt out until we couldn't wear it anymore. We had to retire it. That God is so intimate, though, that he's no longer intimidating. We're buddy-buddy with God. We forget the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not our Father who art in my living room. It's our Father who art in heaven. 
If that's you, I would recommend reading Isaiah 40, where, where God just breaks down how he created. Read the last four chapters of Job where he just shows that he's transcendent, he's incomprehensible, he's immense. See, God is both infinitely powerful, but he's personally intimate. Both of those are profound when you think about it. Again, in Isaiah 40, it says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spread them out, spreads them out like a tent. And yet it says in the exact same chapter in verse 11 that like a shepherd, he will care for his flock, gathering the lambs in his arms, hugging them as he carries them. See, the God that knows every star by name, he knows you by name. He created you. He pursues you. His son pursued you all the way to the cross where he died for you just to have relationship with you. The invitation is intimate. And yet the invitation, the second thing I want to look at is it's to imitate. Follow me as I follow. Again, it's also translated in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or as he says in Ephesians after hitting on adoption in chapter 1, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. And I know in our culture, it's be yourself. I'm no cheap imitation. I'm unique. I'm one of a kind. I'm going to do me. One of the quotes you see on mugs, one of the quotes you see in Pinterest or now Instagram is, is by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it's true. He says, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is a great accomplishment. And there's truth in that statement because the world is always going to try to make us something. As we hit on in Romans 12, 2 last week, it says, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In your life, you're either going to be transformed by the word of God or you're going to conform to the world. In your life, you're either conforming or transforming. Anybody else who tells you otherwise is lying. Yes, you're unique, but God calls us to transformation. And this transformation the Bible talks about, it's not about changing what God has made because you're unique. He loves you the way he made you, but it's about fixing what sin has broken. Again, it's not about changing what God has made. It's about fixing what was broken. And as we're called as Christians to follow and imitate Christ in our spending time with him, pursuing his presence, reading his teachings, we're called to look more like him every day, to be transformed. The word Christian literally means little Christs. Christians should be Christ-like. We bear his name. We should have his heart. We should have his, his courage. We should have his boldness. We should have his tenderness. We should have his compassion. There's a story that I've told once before where Alexander the Great, he found a soldier in his ranks who was accused of cowardice in the face of the enemy. And when it asked his name, the soldier replied, Alexander. So Alexander the Great replied, either change your name or change your behavior. You know, we're called to look like Christ, to be Christians, to imitate him. So the question is, what did, what did Christ look like as we imitate him? And, you know, I've mentioned it before because I'm an art major. The most produced, purchased, looked at portrait of Jesus is the Solomon portrait of Jesus Christ here, where he looks like he probably, this looks like an Olin Mills portrait, right, from like the 90s. I don't know if Hillsong College was around then. He looks like a Hillsong grad that went to Olin Mills and got his picture taken. And you know what? I joke that, or I watch movies where they, they, they cast somebody who looks like me as, as Jesus who grew up on the other side of the world, but God's just impressed on my heart. You know, you mock these misrepresentations of Jesus' outward appearance. What about when you misrepresent his heart? 
you know, we don't know what Jesus looked like, but we do know what his heart looked like. It's portrayed not just in the Gospels, but throughout the Bible. This was God in the flesh, the God who spoke throughout the Old Testament, the God who still speaks today. That was Jesus in the flesh. We won't ever be a spitting image of Jesus because guess what? You know, we're born in America in the 21st century, but we've been adopted into the family. I've shared it many times because it's true that, you know, I, I used to dream about having like a, a, a mini-me, right? My own son, my flesh and blood running around because that's me in the flesh, my genetics, my flesh and blood. And yet again, we're about to adopt. So Titus Shivraj White, he won't look like me. He doesn't have my genetics. But the more time he spends with me, he'll take on my mannerisms, my pet phrases, the way I treat people, the way I love Stephanie, hopefully the way I love God. But our heart for Jesus, come on, it's known through our actions. If we want the life Jesus promises, we have to live the lifestyle that he preached. If we want the life that Jesus promises, we have to live the lifestyle that he modeled for us. He lived for us and he taught to us. Again, as Pastor Fred said, if I accept the invitation, I must obey the six commands. And to obey those six commands, I walk in the 12 pathways. And when I walk in the 12 pathways, I become 24 virtues. That's a mouthful. (laughs) But what it's saying is our response to God's commands and our path towards the character of Christ. They're found in 12 pathways that we've taught here at City Life for years. It's, It's almost like our path of discipleship. When somebody comes to me and they're like, man, I feel dry. I feel off. Just feel like something's not right. Then I'll ask them, well, how are you doing in these 12 areas? What does your life look like in these 12 areas? And those 12 pathways are these, scripture, prayer, fasting, worship, gathering, relationship, accountability, reaching, serving, resting, generosity, and stewardship. And again, I could spend a week on every one of those items and and qualities and pathways on that list. And if you stick around long enough, we will. But for the sake of this weekend and and the next, I want to break it down in in three focuses as we look at these pathways. Because God invites us to follow him. But then there's, there's action that has to take place. We love that grace covers our sin. We don't love it so much that grace challenges us to follow Christ and be transformed and look more like him. So in that response to Jesus' invitation, in that response to God's invitation, there's three invitations we need to walk out as his followers. And the first is quite simply invite God in. You know, we talk about inviting God into our hearts, but we've been studying in our life group on Ephesians, Tuesday nights, 6.30, shameless plug, at our house. If Ephesians makes one thing clear in chapter 1 that we looked at last week, it's that salvation is God-initiated. It was his idea. It says that we were predestined to be adopted into his family. That cements that a However salvation works, God initiates it. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace through faith, not by anything we do, not by work so that any man can boast. But in that, there's a, there's a necessary, reasonable response, an invitation for God to come and change us. You know, we talk about inviting God into our hearts and giving our hearts to Jesus, and that's not expressly in the Bible, and yet I've probably said that myself again and again. But the worry, it's not about substitute. Well, it's, it is. <laughs> the, we don't substitute words for, for genuine action, repentance, faith, and belief. When I talk about here, though, inviting God in, as we talked about in this life group in Ephesians, it's about allowing God to permeate and saturate every day we live. When I talk about inviting God in, we talked in this life group about prayer and praise. 
things that Paul hits on in Ephesians chapter 1. And no matter what your life is doing, because life can be a roller coaster. (laughs) You can be in a cave like Psalm 27. You can be on the mountaintop. But whatever your life looks like, whether you're up or down, the reality is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's our good father yesterday, today, and forever. He's almighty, and he loves us yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what circumstance you're in, valley, mountaintop, that doesn't change. And prayer and praise, prayer and worship are two ways where no matter what's happening in life, it reminds you that there's another reality where God is operating, where things might not look good in this life, but you can trust and believe that God is working all things for good behind the scenes where we can't see. Prayer, regularly talking with God interceding for ourselves and others, it reminds us of that. Worship, this outward expression of the joy that comes from knowing of God, it reminds us of that. That's why we start every service with worship, because it automatically shifts our perspective. No matter what discouragement or distractions we came in with, worship reminds us, hey, God is still good. He's still sovereign. Nothing's changed since last week with the cross. Jesus still died, still purchased our salvation, and we can walk forward in peace and hope and receive what God would give because of that. That's why we start every service with worship. But, you know, even in my prayers and my worship, Scripture is the fuel The reading, the studying, memorizing the Bible, man, if my prayer life feels stale, if I wake up and my coffee hasn't sunk in yet, I'm just like, where do I start? I'll just turn to some verse I've memorized. Or if I can't even get to there because still the caffeine hasn't kicked in yet, I'm just going to open my Bible to a song, to a teaching. And, man, that fuels my prayers. Those words of Scripture become my prayers. Man, if your prayer life feels stale, your your time and devotion feels stale, I just encourage you, start memorizing Scripture. Start with a short verse. But come on, I challenge you. If you're already doing that, memorize a a chapter of Psalms. That will spark your your prayer life like no other. But it also, God's Word fuels our worship. These songs we sing, again, like Lion and the Lamb, that's that's Scripture, that, that God is a lion, that, that Jesus is the lamb that died for us. And again, this worship is pulled right out of Scripture to, to pull us out of any doldrums, distractions, discouragement, and remind us again that God is sovereign and he's all-powerful and he loves us. As you know, if Scripture is the fuel, fasting is like Nas. Anybody watch Fast and the Furious? It's like adding some horsepower to the mix. Fasting is just this idea of sacrificing common things to focus on God food, social media, whatever shifts our focus and fuels our focus on God. Jesus said to the disciples in Mark 9, there's, a, there's another level you hit when you add fasting to your prayers. So there's that second, that's the first invitation that we need to embrace, that, that we invite God in to saturate our lives day in, day out, not just one moment, but our, our life, our worship, our day-to-day following, our day-to-day activity. But the second invitation is this, to invite others in. You know, again, we talk about inviting God into our hearts, and Paul doesn't use that verbiage in Philippians 1, but what he does say to the people of Philippi in verse 7, I believe, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. That's a profound statement that we shouldn't read too quickly. You know, our relationship with God, it should be personal because, again, God is infinitely powerful, yet he wants to be intimate with us. But we can't confuse personal with private. You know, we share in the grace of God so that we can share the grace of God. A private relationship with God is a stunted relationship with God. 
Because as we walk in obedience to God, there's the great command to love our neighbor. There's the great commission to go out and make disciples. You know, too many people in the church, and I've been guilty of this before, we consider ourselves mature in the faith, but when's the last time we've discipled anybody? When's the last time we've shared our faith? Why is that so easy? Because it's so easy to make our our faith personal and private. So easy just to keep it to ourselves. But our faith is called to be personal and public. Again, it's supposed to affect every realm of our life. And when you talk about the pathways, you think about gathering. It's just this idea of engaging in community. Relationship. This idea of being authentic with others. And then that steps right into accountability. This idea of having someone that challenges you and helps you reach your potential. And then serving, meeting the needs of others. These are all ways that we invite others in. And yet it's things that we hesitate with. Because there's hard work in serving. There's hard conversations in accountability. When you step into relationships, sometimes you're just great with the people around you. So the temptation is just to worry about doing me and, and worry. you can worry about yourself. But Paul didn't. Again, in verse 7 talks about how he has them in his heart. In verse 3 of Philippians 1, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In the message version, it says, every time you cross my mind, I break out into exclamations of thanks for God. There's some people I look back on where I'm like, man, when I think of them, I just praise God (laughs) because I'm so encouraged by the fact they were in my life. And if, if you can't say that about somebody, then, hey, man, right feelings follow right actions. Invest in those pathways that get you rooted and in the family of faith, and those people will make their way into your heart in powerful ways. Philippians 1.5, he praises God. Why? Because of your partnership. The word for partnership is koinonia. I believe I'm saying it right. I like that it's pronounced koinonia when I say it, whether that's right or wrong, because the coin, right, this is the currency of a healthy community. Koinonia means partnership with God, but more, more commonly it means partnership with people. Again, gathering, relationship, accountability, generosity, and stewardship. These are things community is built on. They're hard, they're challenging, but they grow us into the image of Christ. I believe one way we've stunted our growth as believers and really as a society is we've replaced community with networks. You know, community and networks are very similar in a lot of ways, but there's one key difference. Networks belong to you, but you belong to a community. You choose your network, the most common form, your social network, right? You, you, it's why you almost never see unity come from division on a, a conversation or argument on social media because we build our networks. You choose to hang out with the voices that echo your own. You're in control of the people you relate to. And when you're in that environment, you don't learn what you should. You don't grow in the ways you should grow because we never leave our comfortable corner, our comfortable network. But the church is a community that you don't choose. Sure, you choose what church you attend. And again, if it's here, elsewhere, we want you to make that choice. But a healthy church, they'll have different backgrounds, different perspectives, different education levels, different ethnicities, different income, people who voted Democratic, people who voted Republican, people who voted third, fourth, fifth party, all in the same room worshiping Jesus. A healthy church is the one of the few places that gives us that community, a unified, diverse community. You know, I remember early on when, when City Life got planted, the movie theater in Newport News off Victory Boulevard, I had just graduated college, and, and, I, and I was a fairly new believer, 
been following Jesus for about a year, and I remember walking in there once in my baggy pants, oversized shirt, looking around, and there was just so many people from different backgrounds, so many people with different interests outside of Jesus, but we had Jesus in common. And for all the differences, again, people who, if, if, if I didn't have the church and faith in Jesus, I probably wouldn't have been close friends with half of them because we just had such different lives. But we came together. We worshiped together. We gathered together. We got into relationships, small groups together. And through all that, it's made me step out of my comfort zone and grow. It stretched me. And maybe you say, well, that's just your life. You're a goofball, so you don't really fit in, right? Maybe. Maybe you're right. But if you look at Acts 16, this is the story of Paul planning this church that he's writing to in Philippians. And the characters we see in this chapter, they're the ones that he's writing to when he says, I thank God every time I remember you. And if if the credits were going to roll on Acts 16, then in order of appearance, we've got Lydia. She's a fashionista, a successful businesswoman from Asia. And with no church to be found in Philippi, Paul finds her and some other women basically doing a Bible study by the side of this river. Maybe they're going through the the latest Christine Kane book. I don't know. But they're working through, and he brings the gospel to them, a deeper understanding. And then the second character that we see that was a part of this church was a slave girl who was demon-possessed. Right, I haven't done the, I haven't had to cast out any demons at Discovering City Life yet, but hey, yet. And then the third character is a a blue-collar jailer. Probably a former soldier, just trying to punch the clock in this prison and get home in time for Sports Center. And yet, Paul crosses paths with every one of these people. God, more importantly, crosses paths with every one of these people. And you've got a, a fashionista, a formerly de- demon possessed girl, and a jailer. Not exactly your cookie cutter church plant team, right? But because they had all things in common under Jesus. Because they stepped in diversity and and unity, they planted a church with Paul that made history. So my question to you tonight is, is who are you building God's kingdom with? Because the call to do that is throughout the Bible. But you'll never find the phrase, mind your business, anywhere in the Bible. It's really easy to convince yourself you're handling your business when you don't let anybody else into your business. The stats on uh, American Christians, they're telling. Less than half of American Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God and authoritative in how we should live. The same survey found that less than half of Americans also believe that worshiping alone is just as valid as coming to church to worship together. And maybe, just maybe, those things are closely related. That wisdom for our blind spots comes through relationship, comes through gathering, comes through accountability and doing life together. Found in over 50 times in the New Testament is the phrase one another or each other. Just to run down a few, it says love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, rejoice with one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens, forgive one another, encourage one another, offer hospitality to one another, confess to one another, pray for one another. But if we're serious, you can slide in and out of a weekend service without stepping into all those one another's. You can slide in and out of a weekend service without stepping into genuine relationship and accountability. Just show up late for worship and then dip when we start worship at the end, right? Hopefully I'm not giving you any tips. First Thessalonians 2.8 though. It's a verse I love. 
where it says we loved you so much that we didn't just share the gospel with you, we shared our lives with you. Life groups, devoted, whatever, discovering city life, men's group on Saturday mornings, those are all opportunities to invest in relationship, to invest in fellowship, to invest in accountability and all the growth that comes with it, to invest in koinonia, this currency of community. Right, we come together around God's word and prayer and worship and alike, and we gather. But at some point, you've got to break the huddle. Right, at some point. Like, I'm not going to place any bets tomorrow on the game, but I could tell you right now that the team that wins is not going to just stay in the huddle. If a team just stays in the huddle and never breaks the huddle, they're guaranteed to lose. Because at some point, you got to go out and you got to run the play. you got to run with the vision. You have to go. And that, that's the last invitation. We're going to hit on it deeply next week, but we got to accept the invitation to go. When you talk about reaching, hey, I found the book. It's right here. When this book talks about reaching, talks about sharing God's love through evangelism and through outreach. We'll, again, focus that more next week, but there's this great quote by Timothy Keller. He says, the church does not simply have a missions department. It should exist wholly to be on mission. The church does not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be on mission. Again, we're called to this great commission to go out and make disciples. But we've talked about it before. This call to go, it's not always a call to leave. When Jesus cast the demons out of, out of the man uh, right off the water, he said, hey, go home. And when the woman at the well, she went to invite the people in her village to come see. It was those people, her neighbors, that she invited you know, people, I, I think everybody, we have this deep-seated longing to, to change the world, especially when you come to know God. Man, I, I want to change the world for God, but we have to get rooted in one place long enough for God to change us. But as God changes us, as we grow, as we walk this praxis out, as we follow his commands, walk down these pathways, it will result in partnership. It will result in, in going out into the world. You know, Philippians, it's the one letter Paul writes to a church that's not corrective in nature. You don't see Paul challenging them, calling them out. It's the one letter he writes to a church that isn't corrective. This church paints the picture for maturity. And first and foremost in this letter that he commends them for in their maturity is their partnership with him. This partnership he talks about in verse 5, it speaks to the practical assistance that they gave him so that he could spread the gospel. And it's telling that right after this, he speaks of his confidence that God will complete the good work in them. Because that takes growth, growth into partnership, growth into reaching. He thanks God for their partnership for two reasons. Their partnership is praiseworthy for two reasons. One, because practical assistance that it provided for the advancement of the gospel, but two, because it, it stood out as confirmation that God was at work in them, that they had accepted this invitation to send out God's word and the gospel to go out and change the world. You know, if I could have the worship team come up, you might have got these cards on the way in. They're faith promise cards. Maybe you got them on the way in. If you didn't, if for any reason you can get that on the way in, they'll have them at the information center on the way out. But what this is about, and you can look at that table on your left as you go back to Kid Life. We, as a church, we partner with missionaries all over the world. Turkey, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, multiple missionaries in China. 
Faith promise is how we raise the funds to do the work of missions. Through them, through the teams that we send out, it, it supports missionaries, mission trips, mission projects we do at home and abroad. And whether God speaks to you about some monthly commitment or, or, or you pray about it, he gives you some large sum that you want to get to by the end of the year. And you, it's called faith promise because we believe in faith that whatever number God gives us, he'll find a way to provide it. Every year we get crazy stories about somebody who, who felt God gave him a number and then just the crazy ways that he works it out so that this money can go towards the work of the kingdom. And we aren't asking you to give tonight. Take this. Over the next two weeks, pray about it. Ask God, how can I partner with missionaries around the world that we as a church support, we as a church give toward? You know, this will challenge you in, in two pathways. This will challenge you in generosity. This will challenge you in stewardship, what you do with the blessing God gives you. But come on, we're going to walk these pathways together. It's our, it's our commitment as a church that we're going to imitate Christ as, as each other. All of us imitate Christ. And in doing so, we're going to build God's kingdom here. We're going to do it in the Caribbean, in the DR in Haiti. We're going to see God's kingdom built in China. Come on, we got videos we're going to show in coming months of the, the work these missionaries are doing. And again, on that table, there's prayer cards for each and every one. You can't give it your money. You can give your prayers. There's cards with prayer points that each of them asked for. But come on, tonight if we could stand, we're going to go into worship. And again, maybe faith promise will challenge your generosity. Maybe it will challenge your stewardship. But I know every one of us, when we read that list from prayer, scripture, fasting, worship, relationship, gathering, accountability, reaching, serving, resting, generosity, stewardship, for every one of us, there's one of those when we hear it, we're like, and it, the prick of conviction, like, I need to... I need to grow in this area. That's every one of us. It's going to be every one of us for the rest of our lives. Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're never going to arrive there. But come on, how we follow Christ, how we imitate Christ is in these 12 areas. And come on, if that's you tonight and you would say, God, whether it's my prayer life, it needs a boost. My time in scripture, it needs a boost. I haven't fasted in years. <laughs> I haven't been sowing into accountability and there's habits I keep falling into again and again. Whatever it is, if that's you tonight, you say, God, I need you to touch me. God, I know that you're powerful. You're almighty. He's infinitely powerful. But tonight he wants to be profoundly and powerfully intimate in our lives. The father that, that yes, he corrects. Yes, he disciplines. But he holds you close. He loves you and he carries you. He wishes what's best for you. God, we come to you tonight with with every issue, every distraction, every doubt. We thank you that as we celebrated in communion because of the cross, we can stand before you and say, guess what? God, I, I need you. I need you again. <laughs> I've fallen short. But God, we thank you that your grace never fails, never runs out, God. And that you're like the, the father of the prodigal son. Your, your love doesn't run out. Your grace doesn't run out. God, we come to you again tonight and say we need you. And God, we worship you. And God, we thank you for the blood of your son, God, that opens the door, tore the veil, so that we could step into your presence tonight. God, we worship you tonight. If you need prayer for, for any of those 12 pathways where you would say, yeah, <laughs> I need to grow in that area, then I just encourage you. 
in worship, lift your hands. It's just this symbol to God that I want to reach out to you. Pick me up from my doldrums. Pick me up out of the mud. Put me on the rock again, God. Remind us tonight that you're a good father. Remind us tonight that your grace never runs out, God, and help us to follow you closer as we worship you tonight.